0: Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence Fixed Income Credit Currency and commodities Strategists and Analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets
1: and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team. Welcome to the FIC Focus Podcast. I'm Ira Jersey, the Chief Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg L.P., This is a special edition. We're going to be doing quarterly talking about our global fixed income asset allocator product with Damian Sassauer, sometimes host of this podcast, but today a guest. Damian, thanks for being on FIC Focus. Thanks for having me, Ira, as always. So let's talk a little bit about the product. So we've been doing it for a bit over a year now, um, kind of we started it early in during the pandemic uh, period. Um, You know, what is the asset allocator product that we have for our uh, fixed income products? Sure,
0: sure. Well, Ira, I mean, we have um, 13 major fixed income strategies under coverage here at Bloomberg Intelligence, um, everything ranging from U.S. treasuries to high yield to mortgages to European high grade and high yield, uh, JGB, CGBs, you name it. And what we like to do uh, every quarter is go to each of our uh, senior strategists across the world who cover each of these asset classes and and, and ask them for their 12-month total return estimate, right? And those estimates are driven by a number of different factors, you know, a number of different um, forecasts, models, estimates that each uh, individual strategist kind of uses to come up with that return estimate. And then what we like to do is we combine them optimally using um, our Efficient Frontier module, to see what the range of optimal portfolios look like over, you know, over the next 12 months, what sort of return expectations per unit of risk an investor might otherwise expect to glean from the market. And so we've just updated our return estimates here for the period ending March of 2023, and things are looking up in fixed income. Uh, returns are looking uh, a lot better. Obviously, a lot of that is due to you know uh, the asymmetric risk-return profile of U.S. Treasuries, which are you know obviously the elephant in the room here. They are the largest component of the uh, Bloomberg Global Aggregate Bond Index, and so even though between now and March of 2023, and I'm sure you can talk about this a little bit more, you know we could very well see yields go push higher. In the interim, um, but you know, by and large, we expect them to be, you know, relatively in the same place we are right now, and that has positive implications for fixed income investors writ large.
1: Yeah, so let me let me maybe talk a little bit about our treasury forecasts and expectations. We we did put them out, and and we do update our forecasts at the the beginning of every single month uh, of the year. And one of the reasons why we're looking for positive total returns at the moment is because yields now offer a little carry, which they hadn't done for the better part of two years, you know, with with 10 year Treasury yields north of two and a half percent at the moment, as we're recording on April the 11th. Um, you can see a very significant uh, possibility of um, of having positive returns from this time next year. So we, 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 I do think that we'll see more volatility. I do think that 10-year yields will probably breach 3%. But the idea that uh, – our idea is that they probably won't stay there. So when you, you think about the path of the U.S. and indeed the global economy, you can wind up seeing pretty decent growth over the next couple of quarters – But at some point come 2023 i think the expectation is going to be that we're going to be um, having either a massive mid-cycle slowdown or we're going to be in or near recession and if that's the case then you wouldn't expect 10-year yields to be at three and a quarter three and a half percent you'd probably expect them to start to rally the yield curve to uh invert on kind of a bull flattening which Tends to be the the kind of final step before um, before mon- uh, central banks ease monetary policy. So, um, so so that's one of the reasons why we think it could be positive. But keep in mind, like even our um, our return expectations for the next 12 months, Damien. Uh, for treasuries, uh, they're still under what you would get from carry. So we yeah. still think that you'll have some price declines. It's just that you know a portion of those price declines will be uh, um, will be subtracted from from ten year from treasury yields, and you'll you'll get a, a small but um, but nonetheless positive total return over the next twelve months. 2022, though, keep in mind by year end, I don't think we're going to have a positive return this year just because we've had such a yeah. massive negative return in the first quarter. Well, you make a great point. I mean, the reason this is so very interesting
0: uh, this quarter is that if you look back at our uh, global asset allocation report over the last three quarters, I mean, we have been calling for negative total returns for the Bloomberg Barclays Global, uh, sorry, the Bloomberg Global Aggregate Bond Index, <laughs> excuse me. Um, really, really for some time now, we 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 were early on in making that call that we felt that, you know, um, that, that, that bond returns were going to be negative on a total return basis for some time. So this is quite interesting that now eight of the 13 asset classes we cover are, are positive, although not extremely so, led by JGBs. JGBs up 3.4%. That's our return projection over the next 12 months. We've got mortgages in U.S. Uh, high grade up 3%, EM credit up 3%, also, and then Treasuries. You're right, up 2.2%, which is below its historical average. I think what's kind of interesting though is when you kind of combine these together and you look for optimal portfolio contribution, you know, kind of uh, you know the, the optimal combination, so to speak. What it's telling us here, if you're a risk Um, if you're looking for the optimal risk-adjusted return and you define risk-adjusted returns, let's say by the Sharpe ratio, if you try to maximize that Sharpe ratio, the portfolio construction is quite interesting because what it does is it takes down all of your non-dollar asset classes to the minimum weight. Uh, that we kind of dictate as, as as, sort of for diversification purposes, right? We have constraints placed upon our optimal portfolios. And so what it's doing is it's taking gilts and European treasuries and CGBs for that matter, and it's bringing them down to the minimum sort of allocation that one would require. And it's kind of uh, over-allocating, as we rightly point out, to JGBs, to mortgages, to U.S. high-grade. Those are the asset classes that at least our models and our expectations point to having a pretty good um, return on a relative basis, obviously over the next 12 months so i find that to be quite interesting
1: yeah th- that is fascinating especially since at least in the near term and, and maybe part of this issue is that we, we're looking at longer time horizons for uh the volatility for for our sharp ratio calculations because treasury volatility has been so uh, un- i don't want to say unprecedentedly high but it's been extremely high compared to what we've gotten used to over the last seven or eight years um, where you've seen moves of uh, you know of a dozen or more basis points on multiple days in a week, and that's pretty unusual. You know, normally uh, in the Treasury market, you have moves of three to five basis points and, uh, on a typical day, and then you know you have one day where you get a 20 basis point move, and then you get almost no nothing else for the next week, right? Yeah. So, um, but but we've seen multiple and large intraday moves, especially in the Treasury market, suggesting that liquidity is kind of poor. A- at what point? point, does the sharp ratio argument change or shift or or does it not because treasuries are still just the base of returns for most of these asset classes?
0: Well, you make a great, great point in terms of uh, volatility. Uh, More importantly, what you're looking at, rightfully so, is uh, volatility expectations, you know, based on shorter time periods, shorter time horizons on a look back, right? I mean, you're absolutely right. U.S. treasuries have been exceptionally volatile. But if you look over longer periods, as you rightly know, you know, You know, it's other asset classes, other uh, uh, global treasury markets which have greater volatility in large part because of the currency impact, right? So, you know, if you just look at euro dollar vol, I mean, that's probably contributing to the reason we're seeing such a low weighting attributed to European treasuries, UK gilts, things of that nature, you know, pound dollar vol, you know, dollar pound, same thing. Um, you know, so, so, you know, you're absolutely right. U.S. Treasuries are still the leader, I guess, the best of the worst, you know, from the perspective of a dollar investor now, right? So, you know, that's an important distinction to be making. You know, when we run this analysis, we're looking at it from the perspective of a U.S. dollar investor. So clearly, you know, any U.S. dollar fixed income asset class is probably going to, you know, score a little bit better, if only because you don't have that currency risk implicit within your return estimates. So, you know, if you just kind of, convert all of your fixed income, your major fixed income asset classes, year to date IRA, there's only one, and that's China government bonds that's posting a positive total return here in <laughs> 2022. And it's a mere 1.1% year to date. I mean, next in line, go figure. It's my friend, emerging market, local government bonds, which has historically been you know, the laggard. Um, but my goodness, it's down nearly 6% year to date. I mean, you know, you'd have to go even further down the curve in order to find treasuries and mortgages. I mean, it's just been a bloodbath this year.
1: Yeah, it has been, and and interestingly, I guess on that score, for those of you who are or keeping score, we've never had in the, in the history of the Bloomberg Treasury Index going back to the early 1970s, we've never had two consecutive years of negative treasury returns, um, and this year will likely be the first. Time that we'll have seen a back-to-back negative uh, total return for uh, for the Treasury Index. Now, I don't think it's going to be as bad as the first quarter was, because I do think by year end we'll probably have very small, um, uh, uh, very small positive returns uh, by the end of the year. But still, you're you're looking at a negative five, negative six percent total return for the Bloomberg Treasury Index, and and you know that's in large part, uh, you, you know, even though even though the curve's been flattening and you have you know 30-year yields. For on a yield basis doing better than the front end, uh, keep in mind that that extra duration risk has really pushed that long end uh, returns way, way down. And uh, that that's also probably where you'll see uh, the biggest gains when we get back to this, the back half of the year and, and into early 2023.
0: Yeah, you know, I um, so- I'm sorry, I was just going to say, you know, one thing we did do, and I just want to, you know, ask you a quick question, if that's okay, is, you know, um, we we basically um, we shocked our t- total return estimates. You know, Ira was nice enough and kind enough. To give us what we like to call the extreme tightening scenario and you know where would twos fives tens and thirties be and what would that do to total return estimates across predominantly the dollar uh, the us dollar fixed income asset classes and so you know for our you know readers and those who uh, receive our global asset allocation on a quarterly basis you know what you'll find is that you know if we do see twos at what 345, 10's at three and a quarter. I mean, like extreme tightening scenario, right? What it does is it does take your total return expectations black back below the zero bound. You know, there's really no combination, even if you're, you know, trying to maximize your sharp ratio or minimize your risk, there's really no combination that we could come up with that we could construct that would get you a total return over the next 12 months. So, you know, it's important for I think, you know, listeners and your audience to bear in mind that while you know, we do think yields are going to kind of, you know, end, you know, the next 12 months, sort of where we are today, maybe a little bit higher, you know, they're. There is a scenario out there yeah, where you could be looking back over the last twelve months, and you know you don't have much to show for it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think there's a timing and tactical nature of this, right? Because I do think for ten-year yields, we will breach three percent at some point, but uh, the question is, how long do we stay there, right? So, sure. so when you and I were talking about this last week, I, I think just to you know kind of peel back the curtain and and uh, you know uh, figure out what are uh, you know how how this sausage is made, if you if you will, if I'm mixing my metaphors there, <laughs> but if um, You know, because the the issue is, is that if we get to three and a quarter, for example, in the next, say, three to six months, um, we can then rally back significantly from there by the time we get to this time next year. Right. So that's I I think that's that's part of the issue with trying to do some of this analysis. When we're looking ahead one year, the question is that the path will matter at some point. Right. So if you go long the Treasury market right now. You do risk significant mark-to-market exposure, I think, um, on your on your return. So maybe it's not quite time to, you know, full bore dip into the market. But the but I, I think the point of our analysis and and you know this goes it holds true for most of the uh, asset classes that we talked about in the U.S. dollar space at least. You know, so things like mortgages and even U.S. credit is. Um, is you know maybe if you were very short, maybe now's the time not to be quite as aggressive in thinking that yields are going to continue to go up. You know, just thinking about this, just in the last five weeks or so, we've gone up over hundred, almost hundred basis points yeah. in 10-year real yields and hundred basis points in uh, in 10-year nominal yields. Right. So so that's you know that's probably a bulk of the move that you're going to see this year. But you know it doesn't mean that we can't do worse before we start to do better
0: and let and let's just put that in context from a from a market value perspective you know year to date you know the 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 global uh, u- universe for fixed income has shed 5 trillion in market value it's now at 63.2 trillion you know that's a pretty big you know erosion of of pure market value in the fixed income market and what that's done ira is it's eliminated three years of profit, right? I mean, you'd have to go back to May 2019. I mean, that's that's where we are right now in terms of, you know, the level for the Bloomberg Global Aggregate Bond Index, right? And so, you know, what does that really mean? If you look back to December of 2012, when we really started, you know, really breaking out, you know, those, um, those underlying factors which drive total returns in the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index, um, basically, you know, all of your active risk I'm talking your 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 currency you know currency losses over the period are minus you know 1200 basis points but we did have a positive contribution from both duration and spread since December of 2012 and that has almost nearly been eradicated you know in in the recent sell off and so now you know it's just coupon income it's just carry you know that's the primary performance driver over the period you know and it's barely keeping you in the plus, I think it's a 7.9% return since December of 2012. So, you know, not much to really show for, you know, it, from a fixed income perspective.
1: That's great. Damien, I think we're uh, at our time here. So I want to <laughs> thank Damien Sassauer for joining us for this inaugural edition of our global fixed income asset allocator uh, podcast. Damien, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Ara. Cheers. On behalf of all of us at Bloomberg Intelligence, I've been Ira Jersey. Uh, I hope that you will continue to listen to the FIC Focus podcast, which we put out on a pretty regular basis now covering most, yeah, at least U.S. fixed income asset classes. If you have any ideas for topics uh, or guests that you'd like to, us to have on our uh, our program, please let us know. Hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening.